welcome to the Witch Hut. I'm your host, Chelsea Martinez, and I'm a practicing witch here to add some magic to your day. Recently, I got a listener suggestion that made me rethink the concept of the weekly updates that I usually do. See, I overestimated how much my practice changes week to week. I think I had the idea that giving frequent updates would encourage me to branch out and try new things, but the truth is that I'm pretty happy with the basics of my magical practice. So, although things will keep evolving, they probably won't change dramatically from week to week. So going forward, I still want to have time set aside for updates, but in addition to updates for my own practice, I want to address smaller magical topics and things that you could theoretically incorporate into your practice right away. I feel really good about this development. My own interest in witchcraft leans heavily on the theoretical side, possibly because I've already done a lot of practical study. So having some time, which will always be dedicated to practical study, should help balance out this podcast and hopefully make it a little more friendly for listeners of all backgrounds and interest levels. And don't worry, I'll still make sure to add any updates about my personal practice or other witchy things that I enjoy. So for this first segment on practical magic, I want to talk about the color red. Color is a very easy way to tie your intention into a magical working, and red is one of the most versatile colors in my experience. It's also very fitting for our first official summer episode, both for its association with the season, as well as for its association with the number one. Red is associated with passion, sex, and excitement. It's an excellent color to use if you want to spice up your love life, or if you're looking to supercharge a spell meant to attract a lover. Red is also tied to any other type of passion or excitement, so if you're looking to add some excitement or zest for life into a spell, incorporating the color red can be great. Red can also be used for health and vitality, and of course, red is associated with courage. I like to use red for defensive and protective magic. Red is often used for stop signs or other warning signs, so to me, red represents a warrior on my side, ready to defend the lines which I have decided are not to be crossed. Although I often use a black candle to protect a space, when I feel that there needs to be a little more active energy in my protective efforts, I'll use red instead. And speaking of active energy, red is associated with willpower and with action, so if I need quick results, I'll make sure to incorporate red. For example, I might do a candle spell for money using a green candle, appropriately dressed with money symbols or words to describe what the money is used for, and as that candle is being burnt, I use a red candle alongside it, or make sure to have some carnelian or another red stone on my altar. I have also sealed petitions with a red lipstick kiss or worn red during a spell to encourage faster results. Because red is so versatile, you can find a lot of different ways to incorporate it into your magical workings, but there are a few instances where it might not be so appropriate. For example, if you're using red to get faster results, you may want to consider that sometimes fast results deliver quickly and then that's it. So if you're adding some red to your money spell, it's better to do so when you need money quickly and not necessarily when you need money that's going to last. 
Do it when you have bills to pay, not when you're looking to land your dream job. If you need fast money and long-term money, in that case, I would do the fast money spell first and then do a spell to create the optimal circumstances to go after the long-term money. Red is also not great for love work that is meant to attract something to be taken slowly or even to start as a friendship. In that instance, pink will work better for you. Red is also not always the best choice for anything that is not meant to be bold and decisive. So if you're ambivalent about something, red is not the color for that spell. And perhaps this is obvious, but red is not the color to use when you're looking for results that will be peaceful and calm. Red is probably the most exciting and passionate color there is. So using it in a spell for calm will still leave you feeling restless. One more thing I'd like to mention before we get into the deck reviews is the new tag I bought for my cat, Juno. I got it from Stamp Out Loud on Etsy, and on the front, there's a triple moon with a pentacle in the center. On the back, there is an eye that looks like an old school psychic shop sign. I'll include pictures on Instagram, but I'm mentioning this because I've been wanting a witchy tag for Juno for a while, and a lot of what I found was either laser etched, which can be scratched off, or was a charm attached to a normal tag, and I didn't want to add any superfluous dangles to her collar. I'm not being sponsored or anything like that, but I was really pleased with the quality and sturdiness of the tag, and I was really happy to find several witchy options, which are often not included in design choices for pet tags. After doing my divination overview, I felt really inspired to talk more about divination and in particular tarot. I felt like it would be fun to pick out a few different decks from my collection and review them. I'm intentionally choosing decks that are easy enough to find and although I'm using Amazon links in the show notes for accessibility reasons, I definitely encourage you to check local and independent shops before choosing to purchase from Amazon. I'm also choosing a couple cards from each deck that I think display its best qualities, so make sure to check out this episode's post on Instagram to see those pictures. I'll also mention what each deck comes with and if I find any accompanying guidebooks especially helpful. The first deck that I'm talking about is one that I've had for a while, and that is the Everyday Witch Tarot. This is a really pretty and generally uplifting deck. The art style is cute without ever feeling like it's being patronizing or overly cartoony. I also really appreciate that the cards are full of fun little Easter eggs and surprises, which makes it easy to stay inspired to keep working with this deck. The Everyday Witch is fairly straightforward as a Rider Waite Smith based deck. It's not a one-to-one -one clone, but the meanings are the same, which might make it a good choice if some of the esoteric elements of the Rider-Waite-Smith are unattractive to you. I use this deck as a workhorse, and I find that it's especially good for readings that are meant to ground me or that touch on practical matters. My only real complaint about the deck is that it's not especially diverse. There are a lot of white faces, and I wish that a deck meant for everyday witches would have been more inclusive. I do appreciate that it's more feminine leaning, 
I'd say that this one is good for beginners or for people who want something different than the Rider Waite Smith without having to learn an entirely new system. The deck comes with a full color guidebook, but personally I haven't needed to use it much. From this deck, I chose the High Priestess because I loved the image of a witch at her divination practice. This is the receptive nature of the High Priestess in a way that I think is more relatable. She's taking in these messages, and although she may choose to do something about them later, right now her only concern is to listen and absorb. I also like the subtle nods to the Rider Waite Smith High Priestess with the black and white pillars. The other card I chose is the Three of Swords. This is one of the cards that best displays why I love this deck. There are a lot of symbols that are instantly relatable, such as a heart-shaped box of candy run through with swords and ruined with rain, and a journal tossed aside in frustration at some spilled ink. This scene really comes alive, and I feel like I've just walked into the room after someone has stormed out of it. The second deck I'll talk about is Tarot in Wonderland. This is an Alice in Wonderland themed deck, and it's based on the Wonderland books, not the Disney movies. I can tell that the art is inspired by Sir John Tenniel's original illustrations for the books, and it's nice to see them brought to life with movement and color. While I think that the deck is beautiful, and I personally really enjoy the art style, I think that this one might be a little hit and miss for people who prefer the Disney version of Alice. Some of the cards are more interesting than others, and the bold and saturated color palette adds to the surreal mood of the deck, but it also makes it feel very modern for a story from 1865. I find myself reaching for this deck when I want to do some inner child work or dream work. It comes with a full color guidebook, and I find myself picking it up a lot since it gives a lot of context for the cards for those of us who are not Wonderland experts. Tarot in Wonderland is probably not one I'd recommend for a beginner, but I think that if you're a bit beyond beginner and you want to try out a deck that has a lot of narrative storytelling already built in, this would be a good one. It also offers some new perspectives on tarot, and I particularly like the idea of using Alice's journey as the fool's journey. From this deck, I chose Temperance, which I think is often a misunderstood card, and I think that the illustration of Alice having to sample between the piece of mushroom that shrinks her and the piece that makes her grow larger until she's the right size is a great representation of the card. I also love that the scene is set at sunset, further showing how the place between two different ends of the spectrum can be just right and something completely unique. I also chose the Two of Cups, which shows the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. I find these two characters to be linked to each other, as they seem to share the same state of madness, aside from both being stuck at their eternal tea party. I also picked this one because I can see how the image is inspired by the Rider Waite Smith while having that Wonderland twist. The next deck I'll review is the Japaritza Tarot. 
I first came across this deck when my passion for tarot was being reignited after a long time away from the cards. And although I felt ready to branch out, the abstract and somewhat expressionist art was intriguing, but still too intimidating. However, by the time I felt like I was ready for the deck, it was out of print and prohibitively expensive to buy secondhand. I mourned, but unfortunately had to move on, even if seeing images from other, more fortunate souls did give me a pang of longing and a tug of remorse. But then, one fine day, this deck was reborn. My deck is the reprinted edition and it was very well worth the wait. The color palette of this deck is the Stuff of Dreams, and it's very unique amongst tarot deck because seeing abstract decks is somewhat rare, and I think for fans of surreal and modern art, this deck will be a joy to dive into. I appreciate that the Japaritsa feels very much like it's about the art without taking itself too seriously to still be a usable deck. I prefer single card pulls with this one because there's a lot of material to sift through in each card. This one is definitely not a beginner's deck. It comes with a full color guidebook and you'll need it, <laughs> although many of the author's interpretations are somewhat speculative since the artist didn't write the guide. It departs far far away from the writer Waite Smith, and several of the card titles are changed. In my opinion, all of the changes make sense and add a new layer of perspective to the tarot. From this deck, I chose the world, which at first glance is a busy, colorful image. Then, as you allow your eyes to pause on various parts of the piece, you can start to pick out smaller details a staircase, or some pearls. The way that it feels to observe the card is a lot like how I think of the world. There's a big picture filled in with smaller, significant details that contribute to the whole thing. I also chose the Five of Tides or Five of Cups. This is a heavier card, but still beautiful, and I love that it feels somber but peaceful. A pregnant woman in mourning walks through a cemetery. In her grief, perhaps she's forgotten about the new life that will soon enter the world. It also seems that she can choose to keep walking amongst the graves or turn and leave through a sunny clearing. The fourth deck I'll talk about is the Forest of Enchantment Tarot. This is an absolutely beautiful deck full of magic and wonder. In keeping with most fairy tales, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but even the darker themes are explored in ways that make them seem like things you can overcome. They're just part of the journey. The artwork is mystical with lots of hidden surprises in every image. I would describe this deck as clever. A lot of these hidden surprises are things that feel like such flashes of brilliance to discover. To me, this deck isn't quite a departure from the Rider-Waite-Smith, although I think you'll benefit from using the guidebook. The symbolism is quite different, but the meanings are pretty close. I think that a beginner could use the deck pretty easily, 
Although, I think that because the symbolism is so different, you'll wind up learning to read this particular deck instead of a more universal deck that could be applied to other decks. My main issue with the deck is that the cards are a little small for all the tiny details that are packed into the images. The guidebook is full color and has full page images of every card, which is nice, but I wish that I didn't have to pull out the guidebook to see the little details. The guidebook is also a great narrative device, as it tells a story about all the goings on of this enchanted forest. From this deck, I chose the Enchanter, or the Magician, which shows a magician in his study. I love his shelves lined with books and other magical bits with his owl companion watching everything unfold. I can tell that this wizard has worked hard to become skilled and talented, and as a result, he can conjure up anything he wants. I also chose the Nine of Challenges, or Nine of Swords. A child is hiding in the forest and you can see creepy crawlies all around him. Behind him are trees coming to life and other spooky nature spirits, which makes me wonder if those are real or if they're things he's imagined because he's already frightened. And last, but certainly not least, I'm going to talk about one of my all-time favorites, and that is the Deviant Moon Tarot. I could talk about this deck for hours and still have more to say. <laughs> I appreciate the darker aspects of this deck and the fact that to the casual observer, it might look much darker than it really is. To me, the Deviant Moon is not actually all that dark once you allow yourself to step into the shadows and your eyes adjust. You'll see that actually there's a lot of humor and an overall sense of tongue-in-cheek playfulness that flows through these cards. This tarot takes place in a dreamlike world where citizens are influenced and enthralled by the moon. My favorite thing about this deck is that the world of the Deviant Moon is so fully fleshed out that it feels real. It feels like something I've seen in my dreams and I can't help but wonder if Patrick Valenza tapped into something which lurks in the subconscious of all of us. The Deviant Moon symbolism strays pretty far from the writer Waite Smith, and it was created in the style of a tarot de Marseille, although the miners are not pips, they're narrative scenes. The meanings are pretty close, and I often find that the slight differences here and there are just enough to open up my mind to a different perspective on a card. The Deviant Moon comes with a little white book, and although there's a spread in there that I do like a lot, the guide itself is kind of sparse. There is, however, a deluxe guidebook available. And it has beautiful full-page images of all the cards and lots of backstory and concept sketches for each card. And I would highly recommend that if you want to dive deep into the world of the Deviant Moon. From this deck, I chose Temperance. This card is one of the first ones that really allowed me to see how beautiful the Deviant Moon is. I love the shade of blue used for the angel's body and how calm the whole scene feels, as if she exists outside of time. My original intention was to not repeat chosen cards across the decks in this episode, 
But honestly, this temperance is too wonderful to not be included. I also feel that temperance is overall too often overlooked, so I feel okay about including two different versions of temperance. Choosing just one of the minors was difficult, since I think that's where the deck really shines. I eventually decided that I had to pick two, <laughs> so I chose the Four of Wands, which shows a hand-fasting couple in front of a beautiful flower bulb house. I love the way this card feels natural and uplifting, like a beacon of light in a nocturnal world. And some of the Wands cards are the most beautiful in the deck, in my opinion. I like that the suit of wands seems to be populated by forest dwellers outside the city of the Deviant Moon, and that aspect of the world building is just fantastic to me. I also chose the Two of Cups, which is a card that I feel is a great example of one which opens up a different perspective. In this card, Death is seducing Midnight. She's enthralled and allured by him, and although she lights up with excitement, and although for the time being they seem to be balanced and in tune with one another, there's always the possibility that she's been ensnared by someone who isn't very good for her, and she'll find it hard to disentangle herself. I also like the cityscape in the background, as that's a favorite feature of mine in this deck. Both the Four of Wands and the Two of Cups can relate to a betrothal or choosing to come together as a couple, and I appreciate the ways that the cards are shown to be very different. I think that to someone who is not well versed in the tarot, many of the cards can seem very similar, and I like that the Four of Wands shows a couple who has made a formal commitment to one another and is moving into their dream home. On the other hand, the Two of Cups speaks to the initial stages of love, where you may only be feeling excitement and lust, and reminds the reader that commitments made during that time may or may not pan out in the best way. For today's reading, I'm using the Forest of Enchantment Tarot, which is a deck that I reviewed earlier in the episode. I'm choosing to work with this deck today because I don't believe that I've used it on the podcast yet, and I do believe that it deserves its time in the spotlight. So while I was shuffling, one card quite literally flew out of the deck at me, and that is the Weaver of Visions, which is the renamed version of the Queen of Cups. I think that this card is totally perfect for our first reading in Cancer season because the Queen of Cups or the Weaver of Visions is associated with water, and as you may know, Cancer is a water sign. Because this deck does offer kind of a unique perspective on tarot, I do want to read from the guidebook before going into what I think we can take from this card and apply to our lives. And the guidebook says, The Weaver of Visions is a shape-shifting enchantress, and the Sacred Lake is her place of magical transformation. The water's surface is a boundary line between the worlds, a threshold where she crosses from one state of being to the other. The Weaver is most herself in the watery realms, though she can sometimes be seen among the trees if you look quickly enough. 
Whether as a woman or as the leaping salmon, she acts on instinct, surrendering without question to the yearnings of her heart. She is the elusive one, the glimmering girl. She is love at first sight. She is poetry. If this card does not represent a particular person, it can also mean a solution that comes through imagination and intuition rather than logic or analysis. Listen to your heart and trust its guidance. Some of the positive character traits associated with this card are being dreamy, intuitive, psychic, empathic, emotionally sensitive, graceful, subtle, a bit mysterious, or devoting yourself to those you deeply love. And everything has a shadow side, and this card is no exception. So some of those more shadowy traits are being changeable, moody, hypersensitive, hard to read, passive, playing the victim, being overwhelmed by the emotions and needs of others, or tending towards depression. One of the main traits of the Queen of Cups, and by extension, the Weaver of Visions, that I pick up on is adaptability. And I think that the mention of the salmon also reflects this because, of course, salmon live both in freshwater and in saltwater. Someone associated with this card wouldn't necessarily seek to change the world. They would seek to change their perspective of the world. And that can be a good or a bad thing depending on how you feel about it or what that's really in reference to. This card can be a reminder to stop fighting the flow of life and instead kind of work with the way that things seem to be going. I feel like this card can really represent that path of least resistance. And just like it says in the guidebook, this card can represent intuitive solutions to your problems. So instead of racking your brain and trying to come up with a more logical solution that still feels really wrong to you, it might be good to follow up on your intuitive hunches. And interestingly enough, we're about to get into retrograde season, so you may actually be experiencing hypersensitivity or feeling overwhelmed by emotions. If those are things that you're feeling, this card might be a reminder to take a step back and look at things with a cooler head rather than letting those emotions overwhelm you. And because of its associations with psychic work or intuition, right now might be a time to maybe do a little bit more divination if that's something that you're interested in. Or you could start doing more dream work or work on practices that really boost your psychic abilities. As I'm saying this, one idea that pops into my head is maybe even keeping a dream journal or looking into ways to work on lucid dreaming. This might also be an indication that it's a good time to do some shadow work and really start to descend down into the roots of your soul and kind of see what you find there. Shadow work can be difficult, but I think with the Queen of Cups influences, you can do this in a way that is very loving and gentle towards yourself. And I'll admit, the Queen of Cups isn't always a card that's really resonated with me. Um, I really do prefer either the Queen of Pentacles or the Queen of Wands personally. But the more that I'm talking about her, the more that I feel like I do want to get to know her better and maybe see which aspects of her I can find in myself. I think that it's possible that there are some dormant aspects of the Queen of Cups within me, and I would like to explore those a little bit more. 
So even if you're somebody who considers yourself to be a little bit more practical or, you know, with fiery passion or logical, I think that there may be a dormant Queen of Cups within you that you can pull out and explore and learn more about. And this particular Queen of Cups or Weaver of Visions is really cool and it's a little bit different than your traditional standard Queen of Cups. It shows a kind of this mermaid-like woman and it seems like she's sort of half transformed between being a woman, a human woman, and being a salmon. And you can also see that she's kind of like living in the water and amongst the trees just like in the card's description. As always, I'll definitely put a picture of this up on Instagram, so make sure to check that out. And for now, we are at the end of our time here in the Witch Hut. As always, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you have any favorite decks or decks you'd like to recommend, I would definitely love to hear about those too. If you'd like, you can keep up with the Witch Hut on Instagram at the Witch Hut Pod, or you can follow my personal account. I'm at Pigeon Sauvage. And if you have any questions about witchcraft that you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can go ahead and DM them to either one of those accounts. I hope this summer and cancer season are both off to a great start for you. And until next time, stay safe, healthy, and magical.